text or not, because some would say, because something's in Leviticus, it, we're just going to throw all of Leviticus out because there are dietary laws there. There are not cutting the corner of your beard and not wearing two different types of uh, garments that are different types of fabric. And so uh, what do we do with the Levitical laws? Uh, government's role, we could do a series on what the government is supposed to do and not to do from what Scripture says. And from what we can tell uh, in government, they are to protect and to um, protect. Uh, that's pretty much what government is to do, protect people uh, from uh, harm and to punish, to protect and to punish. They're not really supposed to provide. Uh, they do a poor job at providing uh, education, um, finances for people. That's not really government's job. Uh, they are to provide protection uh, militarily and then judgment when there are, and provide laws that would keep people from hurting each other. That's what the government's job is from what we can tell in scripture. Um, and so I would, I would love to see, but it's not going to happen, our U.S. government to mirror uh, what we see are death penalty issues in, uh, in the book of, in the Old Testament. That's not going to happen. Um, but I do believe uh, if there were stricter punishments uh, for even murder, that there would be less murder and um, stricter punishment for other, uh, other um, crimes than it would be, uh, you would think twice about that. Obviously, uh, we aren't in Israel in the Old Testament, and so we're not going to uh, be able to um, follow God alone. We have a president many other countries have kings, but we still live in the best country, I think, in the world, and, but what we'll look at in Romans 1 is God likely is starting to let our country go, according to Romans 1. We'll get there after 2 Corinthians and our Sunday morning, walking through the New Testament chronologically. So which Levitical laws are valid today and which are not? That's a very long question to answer. And I have a book that will help you if you're interested. And I'll let you borrow it. I put my name in it. Um, and I'll let you borrow it if you're interested in that. It's called The Law and the Christian. And uh, this is an Old Testament uh, scholar that taught me either Old Testament theology or Hebrew, maybe both. And so he writes this book as to how do we look at the Old Testament laws and which are valid, which are not. Short answer is the moral laws uh, are helpful. Today, the ceremonial laws uh, are not helpful because we don't have sacrifices, we don't have priests and things that talk about uh, how, to, how to offer sacrifices and things. But when it comes to how to relate with your neighbor, how not to charge interest and all the things that you see in Leviticus, uh, those are helpful uh, ways and we can learn from the moral laws of the Old Testament because God's morals don't change. And then we look at the New Testament, see what Christ intensifies in Matthew 5 in particular. He says, it has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, thou, even if you lust, you're committing adultery, which I mentioned last week, okay? So whenever Christ intensifies or gives us the intent of God's law in the Old Testament, that's valid, okay? And so um, many of the Levitical laws are mentioned. The food laws are not mentioned. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, Sabbath day, 
uh, laws are uh, what we can tell are e eclipsed in the New Testament. Um, but uh, a lot of the moral laws, uh, we use the Ten Commandments. Hopefully, Paul said, use it lawfully to help people realize that they are lost and they're breaking God's law. Everybody knows it's wrong to lie. Everybody knows it's wrong to dishonor your parents. Everybody knows it's wrong to steal. Uh, the law tells us we shouldn't covet, and that's where Paul says, eh, I wouldn't even have known coveting. I wouldn't have put that in that, <laughs> that category of I knew it's wrong, but even thoughts are wrong. Okay, discontentment is wrong. Um, and so um, there, th this is, the, this is the, the long answer, and I can't summarize this uh, sufficiently probably in, in a short amount of time. So if you're interested in the law and the Christian uh, you're welcome to borrow that and get it back to me in a timely manner. It doesn't matter really how long it takes you. But All right, since the U.S. has changed civil laws like outlawing slavery, racial prejudices, and women voting, our transgendered friends, and uh, possibly we could probably add uh, LG, LGB and Q friends, say that the recent laws are improving over time as well. How do we lovingly respond to that? We have to possibly, the, the culture is going to want the church to show love to them at all costs. Love, in their, and, and as they define it, like you have to, we'll, we'll talk more about that today, you have to affirm me. If you don't affirm me, then you're being unloving. Okay, God is love, yes, but he's also holy and just. And you can't take his holiness and justice out, and you get a lot of his holiness and justice from the Old Testament, okay? And when you see Jesus in the New Testament, you're seeing the holy, just God in action. What did Jesus tell the woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. He didn't say, I'll just love you, and I'll affirm you in your, idolatry, or in your adultery. Nope, he tells her, don't. Go and sin no more. And others that we could see um, that Christ, uh, sin is, has awful results. The woman at the well, I am assuming if she trusts Christ, which she does, that she's not going to go from five husbands to eight husbands to ten husbands, that that was it, okay? Her life morally changed when she came to Christ. And so lovingly responding to this type of question, we have scripture that tells us that um, there's really only one human race, and racial prejudices have always been against God, and we have clear scripture like impartiality uh, from James 2, James 3, that God's wisdom is without, without partiality. Uh, there are, aren't really different races. There are different ethnic groups in every tribe and tongue and nation in, Ro in Revelation. Um, slavery, uh, treating people like property has never been uh, God's plan. The, the scripture um, assumes slavery but never condones it. And then women. Mo most cultures uh, previously have suppressed women and treated them as property. And scripture, what scripture does for us, especially Christ and his resurrection, is raises women to equal status with men. And where this should happen in the church, in homes, 
Um, so we're glad that slavery is outlawed and racial prejudice and women voting. But when it comes to transgenderism and LGBT, this is a different category of which scripture does not, is not silent about it. There's six passages about uh, immorality of this type, and it is very clear. If you want to go with me to Jude chapter 7, there is an argument that says that the type of sexual sin that that was prevalent in Sodom, the type of sin that was present in Sodom in Ezekiel 16 wasn't uh, the immorality that we associate with sodomy today. But there is an abomination that um, men with men, women with women, and, and then uh, as a transgender and queer ideology, uh, and there are Christians that are saying that we should include uh, people, and this is, it's not loving to tell people lies. It's most loving to tell people the truth. So we have to know what the truth is, and God tells us what the truth is, and Sodom and Gomorrah do stand as a very serious warning, as the flood stands in a serious warning, as AD 70 stands as a serious warning where Jerusalem was completely destroyed, where Revelation stands as a serious warning of if you reject Jesus Christ, you will be eliminated in the book of Revelation. Okay, it is that clear. So this is um, as loving as we possibly can, building bridges with people, but eventually as we're crossing the bridge, we're giving them truth, a truth that will set them free. This is what truth does. It sets us free. God does have moral laws. And while we're happy for civil laws changing, and we do not want to see LGBTQ people beat up, or um, some Christians say we should just put them all on an island and let the island, let them, okay, there you go, and you'll eventually, whatever, die out. That's not loving. That's not helpful. Um, uh, making fun of people or calling them names. No, that is out of bounds for the Christian. And we have done, many Christians have done serious harm to people that are struggling with their sexual identity or struggling with same-sex attraction. What do we tell young people when they say, Mom, Dad, I think I'm trapped in the wrong body? Or... I'm really not attracted to the opposite sex like I am really to the same sex. What do I do with same sex attraction, mom, dad? Um, we can lovingly respond to that. And uh, hopefully this week and next we'll be able to uh, help you with those type of questions. But Jude chapter, Jude 1, chapter, or verse 7, does tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah. And here is a New Testament commentary. Um, Jude is about false teachers and standing against false teachers, earnestly contending for the faith. Let's get some context. Verse 5. Now I want you to remind you, all, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment 
of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there were actually five cities destroyed, of which Sodom and Gomorrah were probably the dominant ones, bigger ones, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, if we're confused a little bit about, and some would say, that, that claim to be Christians, and gay Christians would, would lead churches and say the, the type of sin in Sodom was rape or forced uh, sexual compliance and not willingly people loving each other. So that really is what's at stake here. And when you see against nature in Romans 1, and when you see here in Jude uh, verse 7, that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality, which they gave into sexual immorality, and they pursued, they went after unnatural desire. Is it wrong to have unnatural desire? Is it a sin to have unnatural desire? Is it a sin to be tempted? No, it's not. So how do we lovingly respond to our, our laws are improving? Well, this Im- improving of laws have a, have a lot of layers of how we got to this place. Transgenderism is only possible with technology. 50 years ago, the technology wasn't there to have surgeries and, and medicines to someone who could claim to be the other gender. Um, and technology has, has changed uh, our culture. And people who are in alternate lifestyles can have children with technologies that they would never have been able to do uh, before with in vitro fertilization and other, other ways of having children apart from the natural way to have children. Okay. So God's laws reflect God's creation. And God's creation, as we have seen, and you can go back to Genesis 1 and 2, is, and God's design of marriage is always going to be one man and one woman for life. Always. Any, uh, anything apart from that, biological man, biological female, together, for life. That is God's design. And out of that design comes children. And those children grow up to learn from dad and mom how to be godly men and women and serving in the home and in the church and in the community. That's God's design. Um, So it is difficult uh, to talk about heavier things like uh, transgenderism with people that you don't have a relationship with. Okay? So without a bridge that we showed in, the, in a picture before, all we're doing is throwing, <laughs> throwing grenades at each other across an island, across the channel, and that's not the way to... We're, we're not looking to win arguments. I'm not going to give you all the arguments against LGBTQ ideology. That's not helpful. What's helpful is to know how to build a bridge to, uh, to those who think very differently than us. And we're raised very differently than probably most of us were raised uh, to. And um, 
uh, to accept uh, God, um, God made me this way. Um, and you can choose whatever gender you want to choose. If you're taught that lie from a very small child, you, you grow up to believe that lie. But the, it's still a lie. And we, we have to love people enough to tell them the truth and not, not affirm, um, but also don't avoid them, okay? And so we have to build bridges to them. Um, with questions, some, and I'll give you a list of questions probably next week. I didn't write them out this week, but how did you come to that conclusion? What is the basis for you thinking that you're a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa? And leave an open-ended question like that and allow them to respond and listen. And you'll find if op- asking questions like that, that they, they will say things like, and I didn't bring my book, uh, this uh, other book, but there was a gay young man who was the head of a gay community in 1999 or 2000 in a, in a very popular, big uh, public university that says, the LGBTQ community is the only family I have, or this is the only place I belong. And that's sad. That's sad that there have been a number of things that have happened to this young man's life uh, to, to bring him to this conclusion, that this is the only community that accepts me how I am and embraces me and doesn't either try to change me or doesn't, doesn't care. They, they do care about me. And so we lovingly respond uh, to there is, there is an alternate community, communities, that often home life was bad for people in, alter, not, not always, but often it is. Or, um, and, and they have been abused or they have been neglected um, and we need to listen to their story. And as you hear their story um, and hear of their reaction to people sinning against them, your heart will grow for them as it does for anyone who's a prostitute today or anyone who is into drugs or alcohol or any a number of other addictive lifestyles. Your heart grows for them when you see of how they have reacted um, wrongly to the wrong that is done to them. So we, we can't say that all, all progress is an improvement. Some progress is not. And when, when we go against nature, the more we understand, and we're, they were looking in ni- the mid-1990s for a gay gene, and when they didn't find it, I think a Harvard study showed that, what are you going to do with that? You can't say, well, there's no gay gene. No, there's got to be some other reason that explains uh, the unnatural desires that I have. And so we'll get into more, and if you've got a follow-up question uh, to that, uh, let, me, let me know. Here's a conversation I had this week. If two men or two women are married, okay, and divorce is wrong, okay, should they stay married if they if one of them or both trust Christ for salvation? You say, this question wouldn't even be around. I understand, and although you, all of those of you that are older than me, this sounds so strange. All those that are younger than me, like, what's wrong with this question? 
This is a normal question that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Here's another issue. If someone is living together and not married and one of them trusts Christ and this has happened in our church, what do we tell the new believer who is living in sin with their boyfriend or girlfriend after they trust Christ? You should get married. Is that what we should tell them? Why, why can't they get married? Because they're marrying an unbeliever now. Oh, so they should move out. Well, we've been living together for 30 years, and we have everything. We've owned this house together. They want to own a business or some other. They have children together. All of this gets really, really complicated. When we try to take layer of sin and layer of sin and layer of sin and layer of sin, and then someone trusts Christ, yes, that person is a new creation, but try to unravel all of the sin that is where they're at now is very difficult, okay? Notice the quotation marks, and you'll see a lot of articles written, and where people put quotation marks, where I put quotation marks, that was intentional, because I would not recognize two men as being married. You say, I'm against the law, or I'm outside of uh, what this, every state is doing since 2015. Okay, but you'll notice whenever I do a wedding, at the end of my, what I say, based on the authority that I have, I don't say from the state of New Hampshire or Massachusetts. I say based on the authority that I have from God, I pronounce you husband and wife. There is no authority from God that's going to allow two men to get married. There's no authority from God that's going to allow two women to get married. None. Why? Because the authority we have from God is right here. And this is against nature and against God's design, and so we can't go with God. I would never perform a polygamous wedding either, where one man wants to marry two women or, or any, any combination. And that is coming. It's already here in Cambridge in Somerville, Massachusetts. So this sexual revolution is is here. We're in the middle of it. What do we do with this? Is divorce wrong? Yes. Should they stay married? Well, they're not really married, so should they separate? Absolutely. Anyone who is living together in sin and one of them trusts Christ, they should separate. You know what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit living inside of the believer is going to make them miserable. And what you can see in 1 Corinthians 6 is that those who are living in sexual sin, they cannot practice it, 1 John 2, and they, can't, they won't inherit the kingdom of God, and they will be miserable until they are obedient to Christ. Unsaved people can live in sin, and they don't feel guilty, but Christians cannot live in sin and, and not feel guilt. Okay, so uh, this, is, this is complicated, but this is, the, this is the culture in which we live. And so... As a church, what are we going to do if this happens in our, in our church community? Okay? We didn't think, and those of you older than me thought we'd never get here. Okay? But this is where we're at. And God will give us wisdom, and we'll see our last slide, the wisdom that God will give. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. We'll spend a, a bit of time here in Romans chapter 6. If you have questions that I, I just didn't answer them, or I just (laughs) 
provoked a lot more questions, okay? Send those to me. Let me think about them uh, this week. And a loving response, especially that number two, it's not an easy, quick question. It depends on, it also depends on who you're talking to, what type of category, Proverbs category they're in. I would talk differently to someone who's naive and living in sin, to someone who's a fool who's living in sin, to someone who's a scorner or a scoffer that's living in sin. A naive person's living in sin because they just don't know any better. A fool might know better, but they're at least open to discussing, and a scoffer's going to laugh and mock and always going to do it, everything they can. So we don't know which category people are in until we start building a bridge and discern, you know what, this person does not want God's truth. They don't want help. They just want to argue. Okay? We're not going to win arguments this, in this. Um, and so we don't, um, we don't want to... We don't want to make people mad. Um, we want to reach them with the gospel. The gospel is what everybody needs. Getting people to that point is, is most helpful. All right, so what do we do with people who say, if you don't affirm my identity, then you are being violent to me. You are attacking me. We have to look at Scripture. We have to think and say, is sexual perversion, is that who someone is, or is that something someone does? Okay? Is it a behavior, or is it an identity? And discerning that, and what's happened is, Behaviors have become identity. And, and the challenge is challenging someone to say, you know what, you may do this, or you may do this, but you, this isn't really who you are. Now let's just take it for example, something that we, no one would really want to identify with. Most people wouldn't. A liar. Is lying something that we do or something that we are? No one would want to be said, there's that liar. That's their identity. A con man, <laughs> other people, that might be there so much, but can that person change from being a liar to telling the truth? What's the solution? It's the gospel. Okay? So how about someone who's a gossip or someone who loses their temper? You can say, well, my Irishness is coming out when I lose my temper, or uh, whatever it is, and people claim any certain, um, but you know what? Not all Irish people lose their temper. And anyone, no matter, no matter your upbringing, no matter your environment that you grew up in, you may have grew up in a very hostile, angry, yelling, screaming, violent home that does not give you the right as an adult to abuse your children, to abuse your wife, to scream and yell, and whoever talks loudest wins, no. Why? Because the gospel changes who we are. And we don't want to, and you can go to uh, recovery groups, and your identity in that recovery group is a, always a recovering fill-in-the-blank. 
No, that's not how Jesus identifies us. The freedom that is ours in Christ, we are not identified with our current sins or past sins. Our identity is Christ. We who are in Christ, we are new creations. God creates out of these vile, wicked, sin-corrupted, sin-justifying, sin-soaked, sin-identifying bodies. He changes us to be his own. If you were a prodigal son, would you want your dad to call you prodigal son the rest of your life when you return to him? No! Dad, stop calling me prodigal. (laughs) I returned, right? That's what you'd want. And there is hope whenever we identify, help people to to separate who they think they are if if what they think they are is sin. And the Bible clearly tells us if, if it's sin, tell them there is hope to separate who you think you are, the very core of what you are and, and what you have to do because of what you are. No, you don't have to identify as the world tells you you have to identify. But there's a whole community that identifies it. It doesn't matter if the whole community, the whole community can be wrong. So there is hope whenever we can say in Scripture, maybe you say I'm an anxious person. That's a psychiatric label that Scripture has a lot to say about anxiety. And Scripture's solutions for anxiety are better than any medicine. It's casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It is, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can see how people take these labels that are given them from the culture, and the label becomes an identity which becomes, I just have to do this because this is who I am. Well, let's look at Romans 6, and we'll probably start here again next week because we won't get through, all, we might get through this slide. What I do versus what I am. I'm not going to argue with someone about this a lot, but I want to challenge people who claim an identity that is not really who they are, but it's what they do. There's a difference. And if we can help people see this isn't who you are. How do you know God didn't make me this way? Because God doesn't make people to sin. And God can't be given the responsibility of your, you're making making God a liar if you say that God made me this way. So I have to sin. So before Christ, here is a before Christ identity. All of us have a before Christ life, and there are some of, many of us here who have after Christ identity and uh, what we do. But because of an identity, usually transfers into what I do. Before Christ identity, here is a before Christ identity. Someone who is blind. That's a correct identity based on can someone see. That's who they are. They have 
uh, a dog that may help them, a stick that may help them. They have uh, learned to read uh, with their fingers and uh, all types of technology, and we're glad for that. But someone who is blind can have the identity of, I'm blind. And spiritually speaking, what does Jesus say in John 9 to the man after he um, helped him to see physically? He helped that man to see spiritually. And the Pharisees said, are we blind also? And Jesus said, well, do you think you can see without me? If you can see, see spiritually without Jesus, you are spiritually blind. Okay? That is an identity that's biblically based. Spiritually, spiritual blindness should cause those who can spiritually see, we should have compassion on them. The same as those who, us who can physically see, we have compassion on those who cannot see physically. And Christ is reaching out to Pharisees as he eats with them, as he goes to their house and talks with them, as he allows them to come to him at night, as Nicodemus does, and converses with them. And we can learn a lot about how to converse with people who are once antagonistic to Christ, and now they're considering or they're curious. Learn from Christ's interaction. We don't have time. We showed you a woman at the well, but learn about John, from John 9, that people are spiritually blind before Christ. Romans 6, we're here in Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, someone who is in slavery, their identity, Bible times today, it doesn't really matter, they are in slavery. Their identity is a slave. They, can't, they can run away, but if their identity is a slave, they can be captured, tortured, or put to death by their owner or other in the culture because their identity is slaves. All right? And what does Romans 6 say? We who were once slaves of sin. Now imagine the most horrible masters that were in human history those who are slaves of sin, sin has a whip that is whipping people. You have to serve me. You have to serve me more. I can't give you anymore. You have to give me more. And sin cracks the whip over people's spiritual backs. And they are trapped in sin. They have to serve sin. They have no other choice. This is their identity. And all of us before Christ... This is our identity. We're blind spiritually. We can't see God. We can't see His truth. We can't see Christ. And we're a slave to sin. We have to serve sin. Those of us who are free from sin, do we look with compassion on those who are slaves to sin? Oh, yeah. There's a better, there's a better way than serving sin. But this is how people who identify with sin, why would you want to identify with as your, your sin as your identity? It doesn't make any sense. But this is how slaves to sin think. They don't know any better. Why? Because they're blind and they're slaves. What's verse 17 continue to say? Those who were once slaves to sins have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There are two types of people in the world, and we need to see people in one of these two categories. Don't look at people's color of skin. We looked at last fall. It doesn't help. It doesn't lead to anything positive. Here's what we need to do. We need to look and see if people are slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. That's it. Another Romans 5 is going to tell, just told us we are either in Adam or we're in Christ. Isn't that so simple? <laughs> like, you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And people say, I don't want to be a slave of anybody. Okay, you don't want to be a slave. But before Christ, this is your identity. You're a slave of sin. And you, you sin. And you invent sin. And you identify with other people who are sinners, like you. And you get, you get together, and you have communities of sinners. And we're all slaves of sin the same way, similar ways, and we can identify with each other, and it, it encourages us that there's a, I'm not the only one, or I'm not marginalized anymore in culture, and now my community is now at center stage, and I am embraced and affirmed. And I'm watching videos of this week of people who, religious, I believe, and they're saying of all of the culture that is still resisting, including, or affirming LGBTQ, it's the culture who claims to be most loving, the church, that is still resistant to this. That's subtle. That's dangerous way of thinking. But there's hope. I'm going to zip through this slide, and I'll, I'll explain this uh, more next week. But the final category of before Christ, and there's probably others in Scripture. I just picked three that, to highlight. Blind, slave of sin, and dead. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We who are dead in trespasses and sins. Why are we dead? We're dead to Christ. We're not alive to him. And we're following. We're disobedient. You can see the, the theme of disobedience to God is part of, is the reason is, of an identity of blindness, slavery, and being dead. The only thing you can do is disobey God because you're following your heart, you're following the world, and you're following in Ephesians 2, the, the, the devil. So before Christ, your identity is not pleasant and it requires us who are and those of us who are slaves of righteousness. We have a righteous master. and He treats us really well. He doesn't craft the whip over our back and demand of things that we cannot possibly do. And we are alive. He has made us alive. Only God can make dead things come to life. And he does that in Ephesians 2. By grace, we're saved. Before Christ's behavior, out of the heart comes if we looked at um, Mark 7, you don't have to turn there. We're, only, we're almost out of time here. Mark 7 says this, Jesus teaching, why do people sin? Because out of our heart comes, verses 21 to 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, out of, for from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
if this is what our heart is made of before Christ, how can we tell? Because our behavior, we can examine someone's behavior and if their pattern of living day in, day out, no regret, no guilt for this type of living is sin. To the point that they want to identify with one of these or many of these categories, this is who I am. And we can say, no, this is what you do. This isn't who you are. You might be blind and a slave to sin and dead, but before Christ, this is just what you do. And this is, if this is a choice, and I wrote my senator from New Hampshire last year when there was a bill to be passed to encourage her to uh, stand against this bill, and she was actually one of the authors of it, so she wasn't going to stand against it. And she says something along the lines of, you're saying that LGBTQ people have a choice where I don't think they do. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's, that's clarifying at least. And I, to, to give someone hope in a, a very loving way as we build a relationship with someone, and it may take years after starting a relationship to get to this point in the conversation where we talk to someone and say, this you, you want this to be your identity and you want me to embrace your identity too, but I, I can't, and here's why. Because scripture says that these are behaviors. These aren't who you really are. Now, I don't blame them for living this way in sin because I know their heart is corrupt. Jesus knew the man's heart was corrupt. And we don't look down on people because they're blind or they're slaves to sin or they're dead. We reach out to them. We tell them there is freedom for you. The door of your cell is open. Christ paid for all of your sins. If you want to stay in slavery with your hands up against the bars, you can. But turn around. There's a better way than looking at life from behind bars. There's a way to be free. The door is Christ. No one gets to the Father no one has eternal life apart from Christ. We'll pick up here next week, but after Christ, our identity is sight. We're slaves of righteousness, Romans 6 says, and I didn't change dead. We're alive, okay? Should have changed that. All right. After Christ, behavior leads to, Romans 6, we'll start here next week, it leads to righteousness and holiness, because this is where slavery to righteousness ends. Where does slavery to sin end? It ends in death. So, based on a website, and you can look this up, the website is the American Psychological Association. Back in 2011, 11 years ago, they have this definition, uh, and that is the exact website I got this from. Although we can choose whether to act on our feelings, psychologists do not consider sexual orientation to be a conscious choice that can be voluntarily changed. This is what's being promoted and enforced by academia and medicine based on this guess, this theory. And this theory is, is against God's word. So, giving people hope. According to Romans 6, your identity is not lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual, or queer. That's not your identity. You can act that way. And you can identify as one or more of those labels, but Christ wants to set you 
free from, should be, free from slavery to sexual feelings and actions. And we'll stop uh, there. If you've got questions, uh, text me or email me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray that you'd give us great wisdom and discernment and love and purity of our thinking. Help us to be thoroughly biblical, even if people hate us, even if they disagree with us and want to agree with the American Psychological Association. I pray that you would, uh, you are smarter than them. And you have given us your word that helps with everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so we cling to you, we cling to your word, and help us to be light and salt in this world that just wants sugar. In Jesus' name, amen.